0: Um, You know that uh, we're going to be following up on last week's discussion after the Paul David Tripp lecture. He lectured about hell, and Mary raised some questions about the relationship between hell and the love of God. And uh, we had a discussion about it, but I felt afterwards that it would warrant um, some more discussion. And some more thought on this. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Although Mary's not here, which I hope that's why I'm recording this. Um, Maybe she'll be here soon. But let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we give praise to you for your word, for your people, for your grace. For your presence here among us, we pray that you would allow this time to be profitable and that our minds and hearts would be edified through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, in my approximately 50 years of being a Bible student and teacher of God's word, Um, there's no subject that has um, no Bible subject that's captured my attention or that I've given more thought to than the subject of God's sovereignty and um, the subject of God's predestination. Um, Perhaps the most difficult issue in this whole area is the issue of the relationship between God's predestination and his love. Um, Certainly, God is a God of love. God is love, as John says. However, there are some very difficult questions as to the nature of his love in light of his sovereignty as well. For instance, does God love all men? Does God love all men equally? Does God love all men infinitely? How does God's love how does God love those that He has ordained for destruction? How do we put together verses that seem to talk about God's love? For all men, and verses that seem to speak of God's hatred for some. Obviously, these aren't easy questions, and this isn't an easy topic. And obviously, we also have limited abilities to figure out the nature of God, since finite beings cannot fully comprehend the infinite. But I'm going to try to sort out some of these issues with you this morning to the best of my ability. So let's talk about first what we did begin to talk about last week that in some sense God loves all people. Um, and we mentioned last week, as just an illustration, um, the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10. 21 and, um, and how Jesus there, it actually says that Jesus loved him, even though this not, non-believing, seemingly non-elect individual um, turned away from him. But there's other passages as well. For instance, Romans 11.28 which says, from the standpoint, it's talking about the Jews, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now, um, you see. That, that Romans eleven twenty eight. 28, you see that God both loves and hates the non-believing Jews in this passage. His love for them is as a result of his choice of them as his covenant people. It's based not on their righteousness, not on their... In eternal election as individuals, but on the fact that they are the children of the covenant that God made with Abraham and with the other patriarchs. But on the other on another side, they are his enemies because they have rejected the gospel, that they have rejected Christ. So here in this verse we see that, that it's more complicated than just to say Does God love them, or does God not love them? It's both. Then we see in Luke 6, 35, where Jesus says, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. In other words, you'll be like your Father. For He Himself is kind, to ungrateful and evil men. So here we see an articulation of the idea that God takes care of all of his creatures, blessing them and acting kindly toward them, even when they hate him. Obviously, he's not always kind. He's uh, At times, he pours his severe wrath down on people. But he ordinarily is kind towards all. This verse um, says that the followers of Jesus should love their enemies and that if they do they will be sons of their father in heaven. In other words, if they love their enemies they will be reflections, extensions, pictures of God as a son of God as their father for this reason of course this is this is the obvious meaning of Jesus words that God loves his enemies and therefore He commands us to love ours the following sentence the end for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men Since God is kind to evil men, we also are supposed to love our enemies. And therefore, it would be fair to summarize what Jesus is saying here by saying, love your enemies, for God loves his enemies. Now, I believe there's also a sense in which God desires the salvation of all men. Though there's also, surely, a sense in which he doesn't. For instance, in Titus 3, four, it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, referring to the coming of Christ. Okay, so God's love for mankind. Now this is a one word, one Greek word, It's actually the word from which we get philanthropy. It's the Greek word phylos and the Greek word anthropos. Love man. Love for man. It tells us that God loves man. In some sense. And that this was the reason why he sent his son. And we see this also in John 3.16, don't we? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't say God loved some in the world nor does it say God loved every single individual in the world but it uses the general that God loved the world. And in that, you know, John has a special emphasis on this. In the next verse John says that Jesus came to save the world. In the next chapter, 4.14, Jesus is called the Savior of the world. In John 12.47, Jesus repeats the fact that he came to save the world. In his first epistle, John says, the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 4.14 So, John had a special interest in expressing the universality of Christ's salvation. We also see this idea that Jesus has a salvific interest in all men in the, in the uh, place in Luke 13 and other gospels where he weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. So he's weeping that they would not receive him, that they would not come. And in this we see his desirous love toward the unbelieving and at least from all appearances, the generally non-elect people of Jerusalem. But the verse that is most direct in this regard is Second Peter 3, nine. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And, you know, people have have worked very hard to try to find a way to interpret this verse as not meaning that God wants all men to come to repentance because of the tension, the philosophical tension between that idea and the idea that God chooses some and chooses for others to not be saved but let me read you what Calvin says about this verse so wonderful is his love toward mankind that he would have them all to be saved and is of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on the lost God is ready to receive all to repentance but it may be asked If God wishes none to perish, why is it that so many do perish? To this my answer is that no mention is here made of the hidden purpose of God, according to which the reprobate are doomed to their own ruin, but only of His will as made known to us in the Gospel for there god stretches forth his for there in the gospel god stretches forth his hand without a difference to all but lays hold only of those to lead to himself whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world so here's the one who's sort of has a key role in calvinism saying taking the same interpretation of 2 Peter 3.9 contrary to many of his followers who say it can't mean that because it contradicts the concept of predestination. Robert Louis Dabney, who is a famous southern Presbyterian theologian, asked this question about this passage. Does this mean that God is not sincere in his expressions of love for those destined for destruction. So when God says that he wants them to be saved, when he says he loves them, he's not sincere because he's really planning for their destruction. And he answers this way, that God is not insincere, but actually has some love for them and desire for their salvation but because of higher purposes does not actually save them. And uh, if you're interested in a fuller elaboration of what those higher purposes might be, I would refer you to my biblical investigator. Um, And, you know, I've I've written uh, these many years ago, but they're still I think uh, helpful to many. Um, this whole second volume is on this issue of predestination and various questions, but this particular uh, um, part of it is on, it's called Predestination, Hell, and the Love of God. And um, if you have, don't have these, and you would like that one? I have some full sets. I have four full sets. If you would like just, um, and I'll put them on a back. back uh, yeah, Brian will pass you one of those if you like. If you want just this copy of this issue, I'm happy to to pass one of these out now, or or leave one here, and you can come over and get it. Feel free to get up now and get it so that you don't forget afterwards. The the concept is um, to show that hell itself and the wicked were created out of love. Now, if this, if Second Peter three nine were the only verse in the Bible that said something like this, I would join in and looking with others to try to find another interpretation of this verse. But the fact is, it seems to fit into a series of verses, and so, and I, it seems to me that this is best interpreted as another one in this series, expressing the loving desire on the part of God for the salvation of each and every person. Now, Dabney gets a little bit to this, but let me expound it a little further. This idea that God's desire is sometimes contrary to his decree. What God wants... He sometimes subordinates to something He wants more. We do this all the time, don't we? We have conflicting desires and we say no to things because there's something else that's more important. And um, I think you can see this even in the cross. God didn't allow his son to suffer on the cross because this is what God really wanted to see that it was just so fun for him to watch his son suffer. No it's because he had a greater purpose that he allowed his son to suffer he wanted to see First of all, the salvation of his people, and second of all, the glorification of his son on account of what he did, so um, he allowed something that he didn't desire on one hand on one in one sense to happen because there's something else he desired more um, You can also see this in the question of whether Jesus in his humanity was perfectly happy. So when Jesus was on the cross dying, was he perfectly happy? Why is it inconsistent to endure suffering and yet be perfectly happy? His perfect happiness, we're told... By in Hebrews 12, was for the joy that was set before him. The joy that he knew would come as a result of his suffering. So you see also, Jesus was not doing this because it was so much fun, but rather because there was a greater good that he was accomplishing. I really like what John Piper says about this whole subject. John Piper says, by the way, I, uh, I'm i sure most of you heard that the Lord took uh, some important men in the PCA this week. Um, Tim Keller died of pancreatic cancer. And um, Steve Smallman, former pastor at McLean PCA, Um Died of something unknown. It's strange. He got very sicker and sicker, and everything they, all the tests, they proved nothing, and and all the things they tried didn't do any good. So they don't know what that was about. And then there was what's Harry this? Reader, who was the pastor of um, the big church in Birmingham, Alabama, called Briarwood the largest brick structure in the state of Alabama. And, um, and he, was, uh, he was in a tragic car accident and uh, was killed instantly or pretty instantly. So anyway, but John Piper, that just came to mind when I thought of John Piper. Um, John Piper says that, you know, why do we say that the mystery is at the point where where God says that um, He chooses and and yet we feel like there's human freedom. Wouldn't the mystery better be put at this place where where you know God on the one hand decrees people to eternal destruction, and yet on the other hand desires their salvation. That's the place for the mystery. And uh, and I like that, um, because you know, we're, we're just not like God. We're, we're uh, so different. His thoughts are so high above us that sometimes it's hard for us to get Him in our little container of what we think is rational, But it's not because he's irrational. It's because his mind is much bigger than ours. Infinitely bigger. Well, um, these things, you know, they may not be satisfying. And there may be need for further pursuing things or understanding things better. But it's also possible that they're disturbing to us because in our hearts we have more allegiance to mankind than we do to God. That when it looks like there's some kind of questionable Actions of God towards man that disturbs us more than when we look at how man acts towards God and I want to remind you that you know of two things one is what Romans 9 what Paul says in Romans 9 when you know he's hearing these challenges how, did, how can God do this? And he answers, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? Can the potter not make whatever he wants out of the clay? One vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And then the other verse is where it says, let God be true and every man a liar. We come into this equation Knowing that whatever it is, whatever the truth is, God's the right one, and we're the ones that have the problem. That's a given. If and otherwise, we have become like all men, thinking that we know better than God. And that's exactly what the first sin was all about. Satan convinced Adam and Eve that they knew better than God so let me uh, we have 20 minutes for conversation about this Um, questions (coughs) who's going to start us questions, comments clarifications, whatever you want don't worry I won't call on you even if you look at me Unless you raise your hand. Um, This lovely young woman in the third row. What is a universalist? What is a universalist? Universalism is the idea that God saves all men, irrespective of whether they have faith or not. Um, And sometimes there's all different kinds of universalism. Some think, okay, well, God will send some people to sort of a temporary punishment, but then in the end, they'll all be in heaven together. It's one of the most appealing doctrines ever. You know, it's like, wow, wouldn't it be great if this was true? So the cross would have no effect? Well, it would have a, a temporary effect at least. You uh, know, that cross does have an effect in the mind of a universalist, some universalist, anyway. The cross has the effect of saving everyone. Otherwise, everybody would be lost. Okay, okay, okay. It does ruin missions. It does ruin missions. It may not ruin... The cross, But it ruins missions. It's like, what in the world are we sacrificing for if all these people are going to go to heaven? I mean, think about what people have gone through over the centuries for the sake of bringing the gospel to those who, who are outside of Christ. It's all a waste if universalism is true. And Universalists are never mission-minded people. I mean, they may be interested in helping others, but not in preaching the gospel. They're sort of against missions. They they view missions as sort of cultural intrusion and and harming people who are living fine as they are and uh, introducing, you know, foreign concepts to them that ultimately are hurtful. So it's not a very big church, is it? <laughs> I, I don't see a <laughs> Well, universalism is an idea, not a, a, not a church. church. But there is the Unitarian Universalist Church, which was the union of... The Unitarian Church and the Universalist Church. So there was at one point a Universalist Church. Now the two have come together, and um, and so Unitarians. Unitarians and Universalists joined, you know, like hundred years ago. <coughs> That's where I grew up in the Unitarian Universalist Church. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I thought you said it's in (laughs) (laughs) resting. George? How can you be secure in your own salvation? Um, Well, you know, there's two things that that, uh, were given for that. Uh, One is objective and one is subjective. Subjectively, you know, we have a sense of God's presence, God's fatherness to us. The Holy Spirit in our hearts cries out, Abba, Father. So we have this sense that God is our Father. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And um, so that is, um, you know, something that we experience as a sense, a feeling that we have. Um, you know, we have all kinds of senses and feelings, like, you know, I really believe that, that uh, I exist. But this, it's hard to prove objectively. You know, it matters what your criteria is, but anyway, but the main reason we we believe that we exist is because we feel like we exist, not because you know, it's not like you go to grad school and you somebody gives you a proof and you finally conclude that you exist every person believes he exists because they, he set, feels that, he senses that and um, so that's even though it's you know, emotions are in the, sen- in the same category as the, what you you know this? What I'm referring to as stuff you sense, it's it's uh, it's much deeper than just you know being sad or happy or whatever. Isn't the Holy Spirit the bear witness to you that you're saved? I mean, all the... that's what I'm saying. Yeah, so it's the Spirit in in us who's giving us this sense that God is our Father. Yeah. And that we're saved. But then there's another side because sometimes we, we, uh, our feelings take over. Sometimes the evil one whispers in our ear, you're not, you can't be a Christian, look at what you just did. And so God gives us a second support. Um, and this, there's another reason for the second support also, the objective support, and that's that some people are arrogant and have in their own pride a sense that they're approved by God when they really aren't. So they have a false sense that God is their father. So there's a second criteria, and that's objective, and that's basically the testimony of your life the testimony of as you look in your own heart and in your own life who you love god and man and you know what has what has been the effect of your faith in transforming your life you certainly can find ways that you still are not Christ like but the question is, has Christ made progress in your life? Has there been a transforming effect in your heart, in your mind, in your lifestyle? Um, and if you you know, for instance, if a person, if a person just gives himself over to doing what he knows, is against what God wants, without any restraint, without any hesitation. Well, then, uh, you know he ought not feel secure about his salvation. So, so those are the two things that God gives us. in the big place to look on this is in First Peter. I'm sorry, First John. First John is the big book. 95% of all the verses on assurance of salvation come from the first, chapter, first epistle of John any other questions yes Sarah
1: it's not a question it's more of a
0: comment Sure.
1: Um, I found this really helpful lately my kids have been saying things like when I'm a grown up I'm going to do whatever I want I'm going to eat whatever I want, I'm going to buy whatever I want, I'm going to have whatever kind of house I want, whatever kind of car I want. And I think the way that you describe this is very much, like that's how we are. That's how we view God. Like, my kids view us as, well, you're a grown-up, you can do whatever you want. Right. That's kind of how I view God. I don't really understand this stuff. There's a lot of mystery here. But I feel like I view God as, well, if he loved everybody, he would just save everybody. but I think that's a really immature way to think about things. And um, how you described how um, he sent his son to die on the cross. That's not really what he wanted. He didn't really enjoy that. Right. But he did it for a larger purpose. And I, I kind of see those two things going hand in hand. I do a lot of things with my children that I don't enjoy, right. that I don't want to do, like cooking dinner every night. But I do it because it's... It's a larger purpose. It's a larger show of love to get somewhere else. Exactly. And I think that I have a very childlike view of what God should be doing sometimes.
0: I, I think that's a great analogy to give us a little glimpse of how immature it is for us to view God in the way that you're, you're talking about. Yep. The child just has no ability to comprehend what the parent, the burden that the parent is bearing or the sacrifices the parent is making to do what he's doing. And so so it is with God. Others. Bob so like
1: if you know someone would say God Jesus died for everyone and saved everyone then if they were saved, wouldn't he be regenerating everyone's hearts and you know making them you know live according to the fruits of the spirit, demonstrate the fruits of the spirit
0: and live according to how a Christian should live. Yeah, so um that's why the doctrine of limited atonement came into being that, that actually there's a sense in which he didn't die for everyone even though um, there's also a sense in which his uh, saving work is sufficient for everyone and offered to everyone but that, that uh, in actuality He can't have died for everyone, or else a a sinner... There's two punishments being meted out for one person's sin. You know, if Adolf Hitler got punished for his sins when he died, and Jesus also got punished for Adolf Hitler's sins when Adolf Hitler died or when when he was on the cross, then there are two penalties being meted out. Two hells, if you will, being given for one sinner's sin. So, this is John Owen. um, The death of death and the death of Christ. That's his argument. That it would be unjust if if Jesus actually took the penalty for everyone's sin because then... And then God also sent many to hell. So he dies ultimately, judicially, for his own people, not for everyone. Um, Even though, you know, like Calvin talked about in terms of the gospel, it sort of sounds like he died for everyone. Because it's offered to everyone, whosoever believes shall be saved good questions good topics any others? Um, I also brought copies of uh, one other issue of the Biblical Investigator that um, r- relates to this um, you know the one this one here on hell and the love of God is also in the packet that Brian passed out but, and so is this one um, so you don't need one of these and one of those packets. If you, if were there enough packets? Did you have any left over? Uh, one or two left okay, there's one or two left. No, you don't have to do that. But this issue is called divine sovereignty, human responsibility, and surrender. I think this one's important because it deals with the whole question of the objection that arises in our hearts that sort of wants to protest God's actions in all of this punishing people it would appear for what he has ordained them to do and this is exactly of course what Paul deals with in Romans 9 and this sort of brings it out and talks about how ultimately this is a matter of surrender We're not the judge of God. God is the judge of us. And we have to surrender our judgment. We cannot allow ourselves to put ourselves up in a place of evaluating and critiquing God. He's the righteous one. He's the perfect one. He's the all-knowing one. He's the all-wise one. He's the all-just one. So this is um, this will deal with that issue of um, that that some people. Are, I think all of us have us can understand and because all of us have can identify with this kind of feeling that 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 doesn't seem right. Yes, Jordan.
1: I think we often fail to grasp the glory of God. It's hard. We don't see it now, but you know, the Lord will be glorified. He will be glorified in His abundant mercy for the elect, or He will be glorified in His supreme justice for the reprobate. And only He gets to choose which way He'll have His glory. And so um, I think it's hard for us to grasp here when we don't you know, see the, the light of His glory, but someday all men will, and it's hard for us to grasp that, I, I think, but, um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, we often try to rationalize God with, you know, and we're, we're a little ant compared to a supreme being, and so I think it's, it's proper that we uh, put ourselves in the right place in
0: the context of the Lord and His plan. Yes, um, and picking up on what Sarah said, if you think that the gap between a child and an adult is big, the gap between us and God is so much bigger, infinitely bigger. And, uh, and yet we are so audacious, so arrogant, that we, we treat him as if he's just one of us. And another thing, There's not much profit in the business of judging God. I mean, think about it. Is God going to say, you know, I feel maybe these people are right. You know, maybe I've gotten so much negative feedback. You know, maybe maybe they have something here that I haven't seen before. You know, this is not the way it's going to happen the people who are mounting up a case against God and its believers it was us believers not just non-believers we're not gonna win in the end the debate will not come out on our side think about Job. Job was a godly man a righteous man more so than any of us And he had, he built a whole case that that this wasn't right, that this wasn't fair. And in the end, you know, he got humiliated. Humiliated. And he kept trying to stop it. But I put my hand over my mouth. Stop talking. You know, I've heard enough. I'm wrong. I get it. No, you gotta hear me out, Job. You gotta hear more than this. And you know, Job. Where were you when I made the world? Who do you think you are? And uh, so it's not just wrong. It's very unprofitable. If, if you're a very pragmatic person and that's what you're, you're just trying to do, what's going to work, well, it's, it's not a good business to judge God. Okay, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are blessed people to know you, to have the privilege of having our ears opened, our eyes opened, our hearts opened to you, Lord. This is not something that we have done, not something that happens as a result of some righteousness in us, but it is purely by your grace. And we thank you for it, and we pray that you would help us to be different than mankind unbelieving mankind different in the sense that we do not judge you in our own hearts And we, forgive, we ask your forgiveness dear Lord for ways that we do we pray that you would get us completely out of this business but that we would trust you and look to you and lean on you and, and uh, know that you are right and that we are wrong no matter how things appear to us Now prepare us to worship you, dear Lord, and to sing your praises and to hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.